0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on PA Books, Lawrence Knorr, author of Gettysburg Eddy.
0: Lawrence Knorr author of Gettysburg Eddie the story of Eddie Plank this is a book with Gettysburg in the title and it's not about the Civil War that's right Gettysburg Eddie Eddie Plank being uh, one of the
1: greatest baseball players of all time from Gettysburg Pennsylvania lived most of his life there passed away there and he's largely forgotten for some reason
0: was he called Gettysburg Eddie during his lifetime
1: yeah he was uh, he was really attached to the town Uh, He did play for the college team for a while, and so he was discovered there. He really spent all his life there except for when he was traveling around in the major leagues. How did you find out about him? Well, I I mean, I knew about him being a baseball fan. I always sort of knew about him on the lists of players that he was there, you know, one of the all-time greats. I was working on a book about Carl Scheib called Wonder Boy, which is about the youngest player ever in in American League history. And he was from Gratz, Pennsylvania, a Philadelphia athletic, played in the 40s, played for Connie Mack. And I got interested in Philadelphia athletics baseball history and started looking at the years prior to Carl Scheib. Uh, Carl Scheib's pitching coach was a guy named Chief Bender. Chief Bender pitched with Eddie Plank for many years on Connie Mack's early teams. And I thought, oh, Chief Bender, Carlisle, Carlisle Indian School. I thought I'd look into Chief found out there was a lot of biographies about Chief Bender, bought a couple, and then I thought, oh, Eddie Plank. I I don't have a biography on Eddie Plank. Maybe I'll pick one up. And I couldn't find one. So I'm thinking, here's this guy. He was a Hall of Fame baseball player, uh, just a really great guy, and won some World Series, some championships. There's no book about him. Nobody ever did a full-length biography. And I thought, well, nobody's ever done it. I want to do the research. I could have a lot of fun with this. Since it's Fairly local, Gettysburg not too far from here.
0: So just an overview of his career. How many wins did he have? What were some of yeah, the points?
1: He had 320 uh, wins in 16 and a half seasons. Uh, he, he never really – that's the one thing about Eddie Plank. He never really led the league in any one thing. Uh, he was never the best pitcher in any given year, but he was always in the top five or so. He wasn't always the best pitcher on his team, so – But he was on winning teams, so he's always one of the best pitchers. The thing about Eddie Plank is that he lasted as long as he did. And uh, some have called him the Cy Young of Southpaws, so a left-hander who had a long career, a very successful career, and a lot of great seasons. But no one season that ever really stood out as fantastic. What years did he play? 01, 1901 to 1917 in the major leagues.
0: If you went to a major league game in 1901, what would it have looked like?
1: Yeah, well, there'd be fewer fans in the this, in this stands because I think the stadiums were a bit smaller. I think the most glaring thing, and this is one thing that I, I really was paying attention to, was the segregation between white baseball and, and uh, the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues were just starting around the time Eddie was playing, so baseball was segregated, so it was a, a white man's sport. Uh, the other thing was you know, it was all East Coast to Midwest, they traveled by trains, so uh, you know things were a little slower back then. <laughs> no air airplanes uh, flying around. But as far as the game itself, uh, the games were much quicker. You know you look at the the game times; uh, they'd be like an hour and forty-five minutes, two hours. These days, games they're trying to keep around three or less. So uh, a big difference there. And he played in the dead ball, what was called the dead ball era. So that was at a time when pitching dominated. Uh, the hitters did not. So it was really more about pitching and defense in those times. So you see a lot, of, um, a lot of pitchers with lower earned run averages. You don't see home runs at that point. Babe Ruth hadn't come along. Babe Ruth transforms the game about the time Eddie's career
0: is ending. Now, I, I spent a little bit of time in the baseball encyclopedia getting ready for this. And one of the things that uh, when you look at the team rosters from year to year, they might have like three pitchers on the roster. Yeah. So, two man relief uh, rotation?
1: Well, I think they had, they probably had a three man rotation most of the time, sometimes four. You're right, uh, typically a three man rotation. These guys pitched 300, 350 innings. A lot of the, the better starting pitchers, they might have 40 or 50 starts a season. Uh, typical season went from about 140 games to 152, 154 a little later on. So not quite as many games as we play now, but yeah, they, they definitely uh, they use the pitchers much more heavily.
0: No relief pitching?
1: Uh, well, a lot of the the starters would then pitch in relief, like Eddie pitched in relief many times in his career. I would say you know you typically had six or seven pitchers on the team back then. So you had some guys that were starting, you had long relievers if somebody got knocked out of the game early. You didn't have a closer you know you didn't have the bullpen rolls that you do today but uh, yeah I think the rosters were smaller too I don't think they carried 25 players like they do now
0: where did Eddie Plank learn to play baseball
1: well I think from what I've seen he as a young man was playing on his farm in his neighborhood there was uh he grew up in Strayban Township north of Gettysburg if you go up the old Gettysburg Pike out of town and it's about a mile or so out of town and they had a farm there where he grew up with his with his family, and nearby was a one room schoolhouse called the good Intent school and as a young man, he went to school there and that's quite a name yeah, good intent, yeah, so I guess the kids in the area played and when eddie the funny thing is now he's out of this day school and he's i guess he's learning to be a farmer with his father, and someday he and the the uh, schoolmaster Robert Major decide they wanna start a team. So they start a team called Good Intent and they organize this team. So he's about 20 years old at this point and his brothers get involved and some of the other local farm boys and they start a team that then travels around the area. And so uh, he obviously had been playing for some time, just pickup games, but then this is his first organized experience. So he has a couple years of that Gets invited to play on the town ball team in Gettysburg, and so he's he's always a star when he's when he's playing. He stands out. He strikes out a lot of batters. Uh, he's sometimes uh, barely gives up a hit or a run. So he's he's noteworthy.
0: Did you find these games reported in local paper?
1: Yeah, I had to. Uh, it, newspapers.com is the greatest thing. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's really helped with newspaper research. There had been some articles written at Saber about the Society of American Baseball Research, about Eddie Plank in his early days. And there was one specific one about his early games. That was very helpful, but there were some gaps in it. And I thought, well, let you know, it had been written some time ago. I thought, let me take a crack at it. Uh, I was able to find even more records of his games. Now, there's no, it isn't always a full box score. Sometimes it's just to write up a couple paragraphs and the final score. But yeah, uh, actually, the book has quite a bit of his early results. And that's one thing I was really happy to find. So he was always a pitcher? Well, no. He played outfield, sometimes first base. But, yeah, he was really known as a pitcher. He could hit pretty well. And he was sort of an all-around player, good defensively as well. But it's his pitching that really stood out.
0: And according to your book, he played for Gettysburg College team, but he was, did not go to Gettysburg College. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that's a little unusual. Right away, um, it in the major leagues, the, the guys who are writing about him talk about Gettysburg College. He's a college boy like Christy Matheson, who went to Bucknell and actually attended Bucknell. Uh, Gettysburg Eddie uh, was at the Gettysburg Academy. So he's, I'm trying to think how old he was. I think when he enrolled, he was like 23, 24 years old, going to the prep school for Gettysburg College called Gettysburg Academy. It com- was on the campus. It was meant for uh, you know, remedial work to get students ready for the college work. But there was, I guess you could say, a loophole in the rules that if you're at the academy, you can play college sports. And right away, he's on the varsity baseball team. I don't know that Eddie the farmer, you know, from good intent, was really all that interested in a college education. I think it was worked out somehow that he got on this um, team doing a minimal amount of scholarly work and became the star pitcher of the college team. So that then brings him you know, more into the limelight because they're playing uh, other uni- colleges and universities in the area and that gets reported more widely.
0: I want to back up a little bit. The, the Plank family farm is, is on the site of the Gettysburg battle? The grandfather's farm. So the story
1: there mm-hmm. is in 63 when the Confederates were coming in from the west. Um, into town, they went across the Plank farm. And at that time they took it over and the Planks had to leave and it became a field hospital and the whole, the farm was essentially ruined. So that was 12 years before he was born. So he was born in, Eddie Plank was born in 75. So he never saw that farm, never lived there, but he knew of it. So then the family moved to other parts of the county after that. How was he discovered by the majors? So, there, there's numerous stories, and a lot of people take credit for it. But the, the story that I think was probably right was there was a coach named Frank Foreman, who was a major league pitcher. He had had a fairly long career. Uh, not a great career, but he was invited to coach at Gettysburg College one year. And he did so, but only for several weeks before he got a major league contract and left. But during that time, Eddie was there and uh, he thought Eddie was fantastic. Frank Foreman had a brother, I can't remember his name, but they were in Baltimore when the Philadelphia A's were in Baltimore, uh, I guess playing early in the 1901 season, and they tipped Connie Mack off to this, doing him a favor. They've known known Mack for years. Uh, the brother had played for Connie Mack, and so it, I think it was Frank Foreman. Frank Foreman also took credit for it. Other people had taken credit for letting Connie Mack know about Eddie Plank. Maybe Connie Mack heard about Eddie Plank from four or five people and thought, I ought to check this guy out. So he telegraphs to Gettysburg to try to locate Eddie Plank to get him to come down for a tryout. So Eddie's going to school at that point. He's pitching for the college in early 1901. It's almost at the end of the college season, and he gets this invitation to come down to Baltimore to, uh, to pitch to, for a tryout. So uh, he pitched a few innings. They liked what they saw. They signed him to a major league contract. So this was the first year of the Philadelphia Athletics. Connie Mack had just started the team. Ben Johnson had just started the league. So they're a few months into the season, and I guess they're looking for more players. The A's, I believe, had a, you know, an up-and-down record, looking for some more help. And college pitchers, college players were always in demand, the good ones at that time.
0: I see from your book they signed him on May 16th, and he had his first major league start on May 18th. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meteoric rise.
1: No minor leagues, you know, welcome to the majors, Mr. Plank. And signed
0: know. him for $1,500. Yeah. And was that considered a lot of money at the time? No.
1: I'd say that was probably below average. Hmm. Might have been like your major league minimum at that time. And, uh, yeah, he was pretty successful as a rookie. Uh, he came out, he won, uh, I think he won 17 games. I'm not as clear on all the stats because he had such a long career, and many of the years were similar. But I know his rookie year was, was really noteworthy. And I know the team didn't win the pennant that year, but they were pretty good. And he certainly was good enough to get a contract for the next year.
0: Well, tell me about Connie Mack, owner of the team and manager.
1: Yeah, so Connie, I'm not sure what the circumstances were that he had the opportunity to own and run the Philadelphia A's. I know he had managed before. I know he had been a player in the major leagues in the 18, late 1800s. Uh, pretty well-known guy Philadelphia Uh, Cornelius McGillicuddy was his name Connie Mack for short and so 1901 he gets a chance to start a major league franchise which of course still exists today it's the Oakland A's and he ran that for over 50 years so I believe he's the longest tenured major league manager probably has more wins than any major league manager but he was more of a general manager in the dugout. Imagine a guy in a, in a suit sitting in a corner. never wore a baseball uniform. Yeah, he never wore the uniform. He didn't do mound visits. He always sent out. So there was a team captain, like uh, early on with Eddie. Uh, it was Lave Cross who was the team captain. He would do all the on-field decisions about the defense or the pitching changes and such. But Connie would set the lineup. He would decide who the starting pitcher would be. Connie did all the roster decisions. So he was more like a general manager in the dugout. And he also set a pretty high moral standard for his players. He had expectations on how they would behave. And, and Eddie certainly, uh, he was one who, who met all those expectations.
0: Oh, did he smoke or drink?
1: No. They say, what I've read, and I, I know the grandson, Eddie Plank III, although Eddie Plank II never knew his grandfather. He knows a lot of the family lore. Eddie never drank, nor smoked, nor cussed. Now. I can tell from my research I've never saw any incidents of him smoking or drinking in anything I was reading and he did tend to keep to himself although it's very hard to tell what players are doing after hours and what's reported on the cussing part I think he might have cussed out a few umpires I did see some evidence of some arguments uh, on the field at times but uh, I I think all in all a very straight arrow a really uh, well-behaved gentleman and I think A lot like Connie Mack in that way, and Connie Mack always thought of him as a son, almost like a son-like figure. That he, he said that a few times.
0: Did Eddie Plank envision himself having a career as a baseball player? Was that a goal for him? Um, Just sort of. No,
1: I, I don't think he ever saw it as a career, and he always seemed to be talking about ending his career. Like you know, this is my last season. Towards the end, he he does that a lot. I kind of think some of that's about trying to get more money out of Connie Mack or whoever the ownership was. But uh, he was, uh, they had land. He invested the money that he made. He ended up owning an auto dealership with his brother. So he was successful outside of baseball. And back then, you didn't make a huge amount of money playing sports. It was a little better than than doing a trade or being a professional in some other trade. But it wasn't like the multiple millions that, that they make now.
0: So who were some of his teammates? Anybody we'd recognize the names of?
1: Well, probably the most famous was Eddie Collins. Eddie Collins, one of the great second basemen of all time, who uh, a great hitter and uh, base dealer and very good defensive second baseman. So he was a very important part of the latter half of Eddie's career and one of Eddie's best friends. Uh, You know, Eddie had behind him at that time what was called the $100,000 infield. You had a guy named Stuffy McGinnis, one of my favorite names. It's
0: pretty staggering, $100, yeah. he had a $100,000 infield. Yeah,
1: the $100,000 infield. You couldn't even buy, like, uh, the shoelace of a third baseman <laughs> for that these days. So you had Stuffy McGinnis at first base, Eddie Collins at second, Jack Berry at short, and uh, third baseman was Home Run Baker. Frank Home Run Baker was the third baseman. So that's a $100,000 infield. So he had that behind him uh, latter, l- the later years, in a, probably the second half of his his time with the A's. Well, uh,
0: Chief Bender, who you mentioned, was a Native American. Yes, half. And yeah. in an era where they were less politically correct about nicknames. Right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, some of the things I included in the book are a lot of the, the early newspaper cartoons and some of the ephemera about the time, you know, the way they were reported, the way they talked about things. They definitely had a lot of stereotypes about Native Americans at that time, and they were in the forefront. They were not bashful about that. So yeah, Chief, uh, greatly respected, though, as a ball player and a tremendous pitcher as well, a right-handed pitcher who uh, came, sort of followed a similar path as Eddie. He, he went through the Carlisle Indian School, which played against Gettysburg College and Bucknell and, and other institutions uh, in the area. And then he rose to prominence. Connie Mack signs him. I don't think Connie Mack paid him 1500 I, I would venture that he probably paid Chief a little bit
0: less. Um, so they made the World Series in 1902, the second year. Or I'm sorry, they won the championship right, in 1902. There was no, there was World, was no Series World Series. 18, yeah. Was that kind of the emerging year for Eddie Planck, Or Did did people get to know him at that point? I think. He he sort
1: of has a gradual rise, uh, where he uh, he doesn't really stand out because. Early on, uh, Rube Waddell comes along, who's a sort of the Sandy Koufax of that era, just a stellar pitcher, uh, tremendous strikeout ability. So Eddie's his teammate, and so Eddie's sort of playing second fiddle to Rue Baudel. You You really have to get to around 1913 when Eddie's the hero of that World Series, and what's, what's neat about that, you know, if you thought, well, what's the greatest moment in uh, Eddie's career, and you, hopefully I'm not getting ahead of your questions, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I would say it's 1913 when he was carried off the field. So there he is in New York at the Polo Grounds at the World Series and uh, he's the guy that, that's on the mound. You know, he had lost to Christy Matheson early in that series and he comes and beats him in the second, the second time he's facing him in that World Series. He's in New York and he's carried off the field and it surprises him. I mean he's just, he can't believe that he's not in not his home stadium and he's being treated this way and he figured it must be Philadelphia fans but from what I've read it it was New York fans too they just really appreciated his accomplishment. Did he become a celebrity? Always a celebrity in Gettysburg you know always uh, he was like a deity in Gettysburg you know anywhere he went uh, Philadelphia very well known and
0: I'd say respected throughout the major leagues I want to read one thing this is after the 1905 series, they played in the World Series in 1905 season. They played in the World Series and after that they were in Pottsville for an exhibition game against a local team. And he played a bit of right field, while his team won eight to three. So they World Series winning team and then they'd go and play an exhibition game in Pottsville?
1: Yeah. So there were several reasons for that. It was a way for the players to make a little extra money. Uh, Connie. Would organize that, the, the ownership of the ball club would organize that, and they go out and play these exhibitions. Uh, the other reason for it was more goodwill and also to build a fan base. So, you know, these days we sort of have the hot stove tours that happen. Maybe once a year there's an exhibition in the minor league ballpark by the major league team. Back then it was uh, their, their spring training, too, was like a tour that would start in the south and then would mm-hmm. work its way north and go through all the what would you consider more the AA, AAA towns, to try to build up the fan base?
0: So you got to know Eddie Plank the third while putting this book together. Yeah,
1: I did. Yeah, I didn't know there was an Eddie Plank the third when I started, and uh, you know, that connection. There's a Gettysburg Eddie restaurant in Gettysburg. It's like a sports bar tavern. That's a pretty nice place, and I had been down there, and I saw uh, when researching the tavern, so I wanted to include it in the book. I saw mention of Eddie Plank III, that he had something to do with the tavern, and I thought, oh, well, there is a descendant. <laughs> uh, when I wrote about Carl, Carl Scheib, I was able to know him while he was alive and visit him and talk to him. In Eddie Plank's case, this is the grandson. The son passed away some years ago, so you know you have to come a couple
0: generations. And the grandfather died fairly young, too. Yeah, yes, he did. So does Eddie Plank III have any memorabilia, like a trunk of hats and gloves and things no he doesn't a lot
1: of that's all in the hall of fame now yeah Uh, if he does he's he's hiding it from me and he hasn't admitted it admitted to it but now he said he doesn't really have a lot of memorabilia he has some he has some nice pictures he had some some documents and things like that that and many of them are included in the book
0: do you got stories from him that were passed down you know
1: that's one of the sad things and he himself said uh, you know, he's heard about his grandfather from other people, but when Eddie III was young, his, his dad didn't even talk about his grandfather very much. It was, I guess they were thinking they didn't want him to think he was anything special. I mean, Eddie Plank had, had died years ago, and, and the last thing you want is a, is a young man who's got a big head for something somebody else did. So I think they probably kept, tried to keep him modest and hid this from him for many years. So. He didn't even really know to ask questions, and I remember Eddie recently told me, Eddie Third that uh, they visited the gymnasium at Gettysburg College, which is the Eddie Plank Gymnasium, and he hadn't even realized, it hadn't dawned on him that that was his grandfather until he asked about it, and his father confirmed that. So I think when he was a young man, he started to ask more about
0: it. So Eddie III is still in the Gettysburg area? He is in the Harrisburg area, yeah. What did uh, Eddie Plank do in the off-season? You mentioned barnstorming, but when there wasn't barnstorming. Yeah,
1: so sometimes there would be barnstorming. Usually what he did was hunt. He really liked to hunt. Uh, I found numerous instances of him going off with teammates and friends on, on long hunting expeditions, sometimes up in New England and so on. So he liked to do that. He, uh, he really hung out in Gettysburg a lot. It's not like he traveled the world or went to see the Great Pyramids or something. He was pretty much uh, around the farm and just a local guy.
0: What did his family think of him being a ball player?
1: I think at first his, his dad was not very supportive of it. Yeah, so when, when uh, he was getting a chance to play professionally, it was like, you know, is that really a good choice to be making right now? But I know his, his parents were very supportive once he began his career. I know they. I have accounts of them visiting the games. I know his dad was really trying to see him win a World Series game and had gone several times and had missed the chance, either there was a rain out or Eddie didn't pitch that day or Eddie lost. And finally he, he did get to see him win in the World Series. But yeah, there was a tremendous connection, a great, great family relationship there between the father and son and the mother and, uh, the, and the brothers Eddie's too. And his brother played, he played Major League Baseball? No, Minor League Baseball, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, all of his brothers played locally on the town ball team.
0: Yeah. Well, the the A's had a pretty good record there. I mean, they were in the World Series quite a few years while Eddie was there.
1: Yeah. I mean, Connie built a a great team and then he rejuvenated that team right around 1909 when Shibe Park, uh, was opened. So he gets the bigger ballpark and then the $100,000 infield and, and so on. And, uh, Eddie and Chief Bender, the top two pitchers. Sometimes Jack Coombs is, is there as well. And uh, they had a, an amazing franchise for those 14 years. Um, and I'd say the probably 1909 to 1914, I think they won the pennant all but one year and won two or three World Series during that time. So they were in the World Series, it seemed, almost every year. didn't win it all the time, but they were very, very competitive.
0: What stadium did they play in before Shy Park came along?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, The name escapes me. (laughs) I have to look that up. Uh,
0: What would the atmosphere have been like at Shy Park?
1: You know, Shy Park was, when it opened, it was like the crown jewel of baseball stadiums. It was a a new style ballpark. Uh, It was big. It had room for lots of fans, a lot of amenities, a lot of vendor, a lot of vending inside the stadium. And uh, it kind of looked like a castle. It was a really neat place. So fans loved it. Ballplayers loved it. And a uh, great place to play from. And you know, it was used by the A's and then the Phillies for some time. It became known as Connie Mack Stadium later on.
0: I, wanna, I wrote down some of the statistics uh, while I was going through this book. And in 1905 World Series, the, the A's lost to the New York Giants four games to one Eddie Plank was no wins and two losses, doesn't mm-hmm. sound too good, but he had an ERA of 1.59, which today would be fabulous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think if you look back through those games, his nemesis was Christy Matheson, and he tended to be paired up with him. And Christy would throw a shutout, <laughs> and Eddie would give up a run. <laughs> <laughs> and so you lose one to nothing, two to one, something like that. Yeah, his, his record, is one-loss record in the World Series was uh, – I don't know, maybe like two and six or something like that. It it wasn't all that great, but it was pretty tough competition. Is he much of a strikeout artist? Uh, he could, he could be, but he was more of a pitch to contact. So he varied his speeds. You know, they they called him. Uh, uh, he was more. Of, he was known for his crossfire delivery. They called it. So he kind of threw across his his body, uh, almost sidearm. There's a pitcher today uh, these days, Jake Arietta, that they say is. Uh, throws crossfire, but he's right-handed. So if you held up a mirror to Jake, you could kind of see how Eddie threw. So it was a little bit unorthodox and he kind of came in uh, across the plate rather than through the plate and had some great breaking pitches, change of speed, and so on. So he'd got a good number of strikeouts, but he was usually more known for pitching to contact, getting out of innings with fewer pitches.
0: Was he much of a hitter as a major leaguer?
1: He had some... Uh, he could hit. He had some some accomplishments. I know I saw where he hit a home run that won his own game once. Um, he had some three or four hit games in his career. He had some years where he, he hit a you know, 250, 260. I think his career average was probably you know, right around 200. Yeah, not, not bad for a pitcher.
0: And since you uh, talked about Eddie Jr. and Eddie Third, can we assume there was a Mrs. Eddie? Of course, yes.
1: So uh, Anna Cora Meyer was her name. Uh, He met her actually pretty early in his career. Now, understand, his major league career started when he was 25, 26 years old. He was unmarried, and for the first 10 years of his career, he remained a bachelor. But I would see these little notices in the newspaper that Eddie Plank's home at the farm with his parents. And uh, the grandson said, well, he was also seeing grandma at that time. (laughs) (coughs) Because she was, um, excuse me, (coughs) she was... um, coming to visit her, he was going to visit her, and she lived in the area nearby in Oxford. So he would come home to the farm, and then um, and sometimes they say he'd walk there. It was about a five, six mile walk to go visit her. And so they, they had this relationship for a good 10 years, and uh, it appears he stayed true to her, wasn't out carousing while he was <laughs> away from home, and then he married her towards the end of his career, uh, I think in 1915. If I'm not mistaken, so it was around the time he left the A's and went to play for the St. Louis Terriers in the Federal League. He got married, and then Eddie II was born, not soon after that.
0: When you were putting this together, what kind of things did you wade through? To, to what was the process of putting the book together?
1: Yeah, well, I kind of did it in layers. So you have the baseball statistics as a starting point. You can see the career. You can see where he played, and you know how many games he played, and and so a lot of it was uh, because nobody had done a biography of him before, I wanted to have a record of his playing as well as as much as I could find out about him personally. So I sort of broke it into before major leagues, the major league career, and then after, and then uh, just kind of layered through it, and I did all the major league research, the box scores and such were readily available, but then you gotta go through the newspapers to find the local stories and the old uh, you know, good, intent stories of when he was in his youth. And, uh, you know, and a lot of interesting things about him afterwards that sort of, you know, I had to sew those together into a narrative. You, you hear a little vignette here or there, and then you put them in sequence and see, oh, yeah, okay, I see what he's doing here.
0: Uh, you also have a lot of kind of historical landmarks that yeah. took place about the start of World War I and things like that in this book.
1: Yeah, I, I like to do that because uh, it's almost like having mileposts in the book. And when It helps you to put the context around the person and the time. You know, when you realize that Eddie was starting out his major league career around the time Queen Victoria passes away. You know, I, I kind of like to make those connections, even though they're not related at all. You know, it just happens to be that, that time in history. So, uh, it also helps you to understand where we're at in American history, what's happening in baseball in, uh, in the United States and around the world. There's not a lot of it, but it's, it's just enough, I think, to kind of put it into context. Sometimes it's hard to weave it into the narrative. It might stand out uh, as just like a, a little bump there in the, in the narrative, but uh, I think for the most part it's, it's helpful.
0: Oh, and uh, you have a lot
1: of pictures in there, too. I was actually surprised with the number of pictures I could find. Where would uh, you find
0: them? Some of the old cartoons?
1: Yeah, a lot of newspapers. So the Philadelphia Inquirer had cartoonists, and they would draw cartoons every day of the ball players in the situation, a lot of them humorous. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought I had never seen these before. And, and a lot of them about Eddie and his teammates, I, don't know, let, I thought they'd be great to include. And then a lot of other photographs uh, from many sources. You know, Eddie having a Hall of Fame career,
0: there certainly is a lot available. So you mentioned at the beginning you're a baseball fan? Oh, Yeah. What team? Phillies, ever since uh, I can remember. And are you a collector of memorabilia? Do you have stuff?
1: Uh, not really. I, uh, for a while I collected the cards, but I, I sold off my collection. I, I think what I am is a collector of memories, <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot of good memories. I was fortunate that when I really started to get into Phillies baseball, it was around the bicentennial, and the team was just getting good, and they won some division championships at that time. And, and then in 1980, they won their first World Series. So you know, all of my elders who were Phillies fans, they had suffered through 25, 26 years since the 50 team lost the World Series to the Yankees. and before that, you know nobody was alive that would remember the 1915 Phillies that lost the World Series. So the Phillies had a pretty, pretty bad history for many, many years. The A's had a better history early in the 20th century, but, you know, I didn't even know who the Philadelphia A's were
0: when I was growing up. Did you know anything about the the A's in the early days of baseball before you started doing this book?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think as over the years collecting the cards, I remember uh, late teens, early 20s, you know, as a young man collecting the baseball cards and have a pretty serious collection. And some of those early 1950s cards that said Philadelphia Athletics, not Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm like, well, what's this? So mm-hmm. I think at that time I became aware of the team and then started to realize that the major league teams, uh, you know, many of them move west at different points in time. The A's go to Kansas City for a while and then to Oakland. The Dodgers, we all know the Dodgers end up in Los Angeles. And the Giants, from they were the New York Giants, became the San Francisco Giants. So uh, yeah, I became familiar with that kind of history and then intrigued by Philadelphia athletics history, but never had a real reason to, to dig into it too much until these two book projects.
0: Eddie Plank has a baseball card that's pretty notorious, yeah. famous, what do you yeah, want to call it?
1: Yeah, the T206 Eddie Plank. Now you know the, the famous card in that set's the Hannes Wagner card, which is extremely rare. The Plank card is almost as rare. And it's worth not quite as much money as Hannes Wagner, but it's worth a lot of money. And I think it has to do with the fact that he didn't smoke or drink. And similar to Hannes, didn't really want to be promoting tobacco. So some say uh, you know, that's the reason why that card's scarce. Others say, well, the printing, the plate broke and they just couldn't make them. Um, you know. I, I think it has something to do with, with his morality, actually.
0: Now, uh, this book is published by Sunbury Press. Yeah. And that's your company.
1: It is, yes. I guess I know a little bit about Sunbury Press, too.
0: <laughs> what possessed you to start a printing publishing company yeah. in this day and age?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, it, it's been quite a, quite a business and it's growing and thriving. And I started it uh, almost 15 years ago because I wanted to do a family history. And I, I was researching the Knorr family and their lineage traced them back to the Mahantongo Valley up, up the river, up the Susquehanna. And I thought, well, I don't wanna pay somebody to publish this, I'll just create a little entity that I can write things off and whatever, maybe do it, do it that way. And I thought, well, what am I gonna call this? So I'm looking at the two nearest towns to the valley that my ancestors lived in was Shimokin and Sunbury. And I thought, Shimokin Press, Sunbury Press. I thought Sunbury Press sounded better, so I took that as a name and then did those family histories so that's how it got started. And then uh, so many years in, we started doing some fiction. And then when sort of digital technologies really came to the forefront, print-on-demand and e-books, that, that really allowed us to expand rapidly. And now we have 250 authors and 500 titles that we're managing. And always we do 70 books a year with uh, seven
0: employees. So, <laughs> How did you go from just publishing a couple of books, a couple titles for your family history to being a, a commercial publisher. I mean, what was yeah. the first time you took the plunge and said, okay, we're going to pay to publish this book and hope somebody buys it?
1: Yeah, I think the I had a friend who had done a fiction book called The Hundredth Human, which was a visionary fiction, sort of a, um, uh, almost a metaphysical thing. And I thought it was interesting. It was very different. We had been doing, you know, different angles into my family history different books. I had done a book on Milton Hershey and his relations. And so this fiction book comes along and I I thought, okay, we'll try it. It's a friend. And uh, she helped to do all the work and we published it. We did a print run and then did some guerrilla marketing at that time using Amazon and a web landing page. And it shot up to number one in visionary fiction and held that for several weeks. And we sold through the palette of books. So, at that point, I'm like, this this might be able to make some money, so I was I was interested in seeing where we could go from there.
0: So, how do you come out with 70 books a year with seven people?
1: Yeah, that's our that's our uh, that's our secret, um, our secret sauce. It, it's actually uh, I have a long career in technology, uh, 35 years in IT. My wife's also in IT, so between us, we're always leveraging technology to help us work more efficiently. We have very talented staff. Uh, you know, WE DO THE FULL uh, PUBLISHING PROCESS. so I JUST THINK WE'RE VERY EFFICIENT. Uh, WE'RE MORE GENERALIST OPPORTUNISTS, SO WE'RE NOT TRYING TO BE A NICHE PUBLISHER. WE, you know, we HAVE VARIED CATEGORIES THAT we, WE WORK IN. WE DO A LOT OF PENNSYLVANIA BOOKS, THOUGH, AND A LOT OF HISTORY.
0: HOW DID PRINT ON DEMAND CHANGE THINGS?
1: PRINT ON DEMAND CHANGES SORT OF YOUR, your CAPITAL EQUATION WITH, YOU KNOW, what, HOW MUCH INVESTMENT DO YOU NEED UP FRONT TO PUBLISH A BOOK? So one of the things I am is also a part-time business professor. I've got an MBA, so I understand cash flow and finance. And when I saw print on demand and the potential for that, if you don't have to print the book until someone pays you for it, then you have the cash in hand to to pay for the expenses of printing and, and shipping. so it it sort of speeds up your cash flow quite a bit. You don't have to invest twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in five or ten thousand copies up front and have them sit in a warehouse and wait until uh, you know they sell off and that's the more the traditional model for hundreds of years and how publishing was done and now um, even your best sellers are printed either on demand or in small batches as as warranted as orders come in so yeah, publishing's become very dynamic and uh, you know the capital equation changing the, the downside to that is it makes it easier for people to publish and now there are so many books on the marketplace. So I've, I've been quoted as saying it's never been easier to publish a book but never harder to sell one. <laughs> so you have so many books out there.
0: Have you written many of the books that your company has published?
1: Um, uh, I would say uh, I'm an author, a co-author for 21 books. Now there's 500-plus books that we've published. Uh, quite a few of the books that I'm involved in Maybe I had the idea, or I was encouraging others to do it, and then contributed some chapters or something to make that happen. And uh, you know, lately, working with Joe Farrell and Joe Farley on a project as well, and I've worked with them on their
0: Civil War book and a couple of the, their other books. Yeah, people who watch PCN will be familiar with their Keystone Tombstones little vignettes. That yeah, it's kind of worked. funny.
1: I'm sort of the third Joe now, even though my name's not Joe. <laughs> We've been seen at cemeteries up and down the East Coast. I'm working on a project called Graves of Our Founders which is uh, getting prepared for 2026 and the 250th anniversary of our nation. What's your best-selling book? My best-selling book of all time was a Pennsylvania Mennonite in the California Gold Rush which was about my great great uncle who went west to California in 1850 and, and uh, his adventure. He had written a journal and letters home I found these in a trunk at the Lancaster Historical Society and, and found that a, a cousin had decided to try to put this together before but had never published it so I took it to the finish line. And now this book is selling very well. Sunbury Press, our best-selling book of all time, is Prohibition's Prince by Guy Graybill, which uh, believe it or not, a little a moonshiner from Williamsport uh, ended up selling tens of thousands of copies. So, yeah, you never know what's going to sell well in the publishing trade.
0: Well, getting back to Eddie Plank, I, I look again at the list here. The 1911 World Series, the Philadelphia Athletics won. They beat the Giants. Eddie Plank was one and one, and it was interrupted with six days of continuous rain. Yeah.
1: I, I think it might have been the longest delay in the World Series until I think the Phillies and the, uh, the Rays were, were delayed for many days back in 08 by bad weather. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, it was like, "Are they ever going to play again? Are they ever going to be able to finish the series?" And uh, I think there was concern that maybe the players wouldn't stick around that long. Yeah.
0: In in plowing through all the newspapers, did did you? Uh, is sports writing different now than it was then? Oh yeah, yeah. I would say
1: back then it was a lot of uh, sort of building up the drama. A lot of it was better writing back then too. I mean, sometimes you almost feel like you're reading Shakespeare, <laughs> you know the way they would describe the scenes and and uh you know build the drama up and the way they would describe the players um you know today it's more uh, more statistical it's a lot more of statistics involved in the sport and uh, yeah, I almost wish we had that romantic era again and and a lot of baseball was. You know, if you didn't attend the game in person, it was before radio, it was before television, you had to read about it in the newspaper. So it was the way you got your information.
0: You said earlier it seemed like every year he would hold out for not signing his contract. Was that a tactic? Yeah.
1: You know, looking at that and seeing how often he did that, especially as he got into his mid to late 30s, because he he was always trying to decide whether he should pitch another year, and he kind of used that as a as a leverage and uh, he held out just about every year until almost the last moment In fact the one year I don't remember which one it was but uh, there was this phone call between it might have been 1913 where Connie Mac's calling him on the phone and trying to get him to uh, to agree to a contract and it was funny because the length of the long-distance phone call back in those days and how much they cost <laughs> but he gets him to agree and then he and uh, Connie Mac and Eddie then ride together on the train to spring training, just those two while the rest of the players go on a boat. And, uh, you know, they spend that whole trip together just talking.
0: They settled things?
1: I think they did. I think they worked it out. But he, he also then, uh, you know, getting back to his bargaining, he and several other players were very early free agents. So when the Federal League started, he was tempted to go in uh, 1914, but he didn't. He went in 1915. Yeah,
0: tell me about the Federal League. People probably don't know about that. Yeah,
1: so it was a rival baseball league that started up. Uh, of course, you already had the National League that had been around a while. You had the American League that started in 1901. The Federal League and other group of owners that want to have baseball teams. Baseball is being very, at that time very successful, drawing a lot of fans, looked like a moneymaker. So uh, other you know, entrepreneurs wanting to do that. So they, they tried to steal players. From the major leagues and were successful in doing that there's a lot of controversy around that there was the reserve clause in baseball that the team that signs a player owns that player for his career unless they trade him or cut him and so this federal league you know bucks that trend and uh, these players were breaking the reserve clause by playing with this this outlaw league so eddie goes there in 1915 he gets almost double what he was making with the A's
0: what you say first of all he was the oldest player in the American League in 1914 and Connie Mack heard that he was negotiating with the Federal League and mm-hmm. cut him
1: yeah Connie after the the A's win the pennant but lose the World Series I think they were swept by the Reds uh, there's something wrong with that team at that point not sure what it was but Connie decides to break it up and he releases Combs Bender and Plank three stars yeah The three pitchers, and he ends up selling off the hundred thousand dollar infield as well over the next year. So Plank's let go. It said Plank was let go because he had been negotiating with the Federal League, and he was older, and maybe Connie felt he was near the end. And uh, you know, some there's some hint there that Connie was also doing him a favor by letting him make this extra money. So they seemed to patch things over very soon afterward. Um, you know, Eddie was back, not playing for the A's, but when he would visit later on, uh, they were very cordial.
0: What was the level of play in the Federal League? Yeah, so there was some controversy
1: about that. Uh, for years, they weren't considered a true Major League. And I think over time, after more research, it was accepted as a Major League. Uh, I'd say the quality of level of play, if you look at the statistics, he had a, a very good season that year. But then he has a pretty good season the next year back in the American League. So I would say it's not quite A ball. It might be maybe a lot of teams that wouldn't win pennants in uh, Major League Baseball but would be competitive. So uh, yeah, strange year for him in St. Louis with, uh, with the Terriers. He, uh, he plays for a manager named Fielder Jones, who predicts that they're going to lose the pennant by just a, a hair back in April. And then they end up losing by percentage points, which was bizarre. Like, this guy just almost played it to, to finish second. Um, strange season. Great season for Eddie, though, although he missed, uh, he missed being home, you know, close to home in Philadelphia.
0: Uh, the, uh, he was accepted back into the American League after being in the Federal League?
1: Yeah, so the Federal League breaks up after 1915. And then there were discussions about, well, who owns these players? Who has the rights according to the reserve clause? And the owner of the Terriers becomes, uh, through a deal, the owner of the St. Louis Browns, who are the precursor to the Baltimore Orioles, actually, the St. Louis Browns, a longtime American League team. And so Eddie is offered a contract by the Browns then to play for them. Fielder Jones becomes the manager of the Browns. So he plays for the Browns. The Browns, uh, they don't win the pennant. They, they're competitive, but you know, they finish uh, in the first division, but pretty far back.
0: After several years of threatening to retire, why didn't he retire when he, he had this, was cut by the A's yeah. or the Federal League?
1: You know, at that time, he's now married. He has a, a little boy. I think he's, he liked the money and uh, was maybe thinking about—I'm sure he loved to play the game just a matter of when to hang it up and so uh, you know he doesn't hang it up in 16 but in 1917 he's he's with the the Browns again he doesn't play the whole season and he hangs it up during the season and when you look at his numbers that year you're like well he's actually having a pretty good season I mean his record is five and six but his earned run average is very very low and his last game in the major leagues he's pitching against Walter Johnson and they're putting up zeros. I think it was for like 10 11 innings. Uh, both of them throwing a shutout and Eddie finally lost the game 1 to nothing. So that was his last major league game against a Hall of Famer and, you know, going that distance. Some say that he quit at that time because he just didn't want to be in St. Louis anymore. Wanted to control his own destiny, wanted to play where he wanted to play. And uh, I've I uncovered something that was very interesting that I thought it might have been a factor in him being homesick, right around the time he quits, there were race riots in St. Louis, big race riots, some of the largest ones ever in the St. Louis area, and it made the national news, and the Browns were at home, and if that stuff was going on, it it seemed maybe he just was like, I'm out of here, you know, I can't take this anymore.
0: So. Uh, are Federal League statistics included in Major League statistics now? They are now. His wins with the Federal League team yeah. f- counted?
1: I think, I know in my lifetime, I, I think they weren't early on. I think in the last maybe 30 years or so, they've, they've been made official. How old was he when he retired? He was, let's see, he hung it up in 17, probably before his birthday. So he was 41 going on 42.
0: What did he do after that?
1: Yeah, so he comes home, helps raise his son. Uh, he opens a car dealership with his brother Ira, who was the the minor league ball player. Very close with his brother Ira. And uh, then there, World War One is happening. There's talk about the draft, and a lot of the ball players avoided the draft by playing in industrial leagues. Now he wouldn't have been subject to the draft, but I think he was interested in maybe making a little money playing in an industrial league. So in 1918 his last professional if you could call it professional baseball experience was with Steelton. So actually pitches for Steelton in the Bethlehem Steel League. Plays against a lot of former major leaguers that were signed, including Chief Bender who played in that league as well. So he uh, he dabbles with that and then he hangs it up for good. Uh, there there was a point where he was traded to the Yankees in 1918, but he he never reported, he said he's not interested, never accepted their contract. How was he as a businessman? He was pretty good. I think he had a successful auto dealership and uh, he was able to sell that after so many years and make some money. They lived in a pretty good house. Uh, they had several farms. So he invested his money in the land and, and saved his money. And say so when he passed away, he had over $50,000 saved. So if you look at his salaries while he was playing, he probably spent half the money he earned and saved the rest. And if he was spending half that money, it was probably on, you know, assets. So it, it seemed like he lived a pretty modest
0: life. If you go around the Gettysburg area, are there any Eddie Plank landmarks? I mean, can you point to the house he lived in or anything yeah, like so that?
1: Yeah, the, so near the college campus, there's one house that he lived in for a while, and there's an historic marker there. There's an Eddie Plank historic marker. There's an historic marker north of town at the farm, and that farm... There's a, there's a development there called Plank's Field where they're putting up homes and there's like Home Run Lane and so on and so forth they're, they're picking up on a, the baseball uh, theme there um, Gettysburg Gettys the restaurant is probably the most standout uh, tribute to him but very little though beyond that a couple you know the Pennsylvania historic marker signs and that's about it
0: he died fairly young
1: yeah he did he had a stroke uh, it was very touching um, what i could what I could find out about it, and ironic in that the stroke paralyzed his left side, so the arm that he won all those games with he couldn 't he couldn 't move it he couldn 't move the left side of his body when uh, researching his career, I found a point early in his career where he got a severe concussion uh, at one point he was knocked out of the game and was missed several games and uh, I often wondered if maybe there wasn't an injury there that eventually led to his, to his stroke. But you, c- you can't know for sure. Where is he buried? In Evergreen Cemetery in Gettysburg with his family.
0: And You said that you, how many other books have you written? Me? Yeah. 20 others. What are some of the other topics?
1: Uh, well, I talked about Carl Scheib and uh, also a Pennsylvania Mennonite and the California Gold Rush. I've done several books with Joe Farrell and Joe Farley, uh, Keystone Tombstones, various ones. We just did one called Murders, Massacres, and Mayhem in the Mid-Atlantic, which is really an interesting collection of just horrible events that have happened in our area in the last couple hundred years, including one that I, I was really surprised was the first school massacre happened in Pennsylvania. It was back in colonial times, the Enoch Brown Massacre. You should look it up. Um, you know, that's included in the book. Other things that have been long forgotten, uh, many of them. Uh, other books, uh, I did a Milton Hershey relations. I'm a, a relative of Milton Hershey. Also a general John Reynolds uh, through family connections related to John Reynolds and was interested in his life. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of forgetting the others. but Do you like writing? I do. I do. I really love it. I uh, especially like the research. I like writing Uh, the history and the nonfiction. I have a minor in history and it feels good to finally use that (laughs) for something productive
0: you have another book you're working on
1: yeah so we got the graves of our founders project which will be three books and then another one that I'm working on is um, called Tigers for a day so while doing the Eddie Plank book there was a situation where Ty Cobb ran into the stands and then got suspended and then the Tigers go on strike because Ty Cobb's not allowed to play he got temporarily banned. And so it's the story about the game that the Tigers play against the A's with their replacement players. They pick up guys around the Philadelphia area who become Detroit Tigers. One of them even wears Ty Cobb's uniform, <laughs> and they have official Major League statistics. So this is an official Major League game. So this is a, the, that's mentioned in there, just an overview of it, but I, I delve into it uh, in a lot of detail. who are these guys, where they come from, a little more about Ty Cobb and his
0: situation with his temper and, you
1: know, all those events.
0: Well, we've been talking with Lawrence Knorr. He is the author of this book, Gettysburg Eddie, the story of Eddie Plank, published by Sunbury Press. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.